another edition of the show. It's episode 323, June 26th, 2022. And uh, I'm not joined by Kyle Klingman today. He is out in Rome at the Cadet World Championships. Um, had a little layoff here on the show. Just got back from Fargo myself. They say it's uh, the off season, but clearly it's not. It's freestyle season. So excited. Uh, Fargo was great and, and excited to see some more um, Greco action today and, and the rest of Cadet Worlds out there. Go Team USA. It should be fun. Um, but I'm excited for today's show. Um, our guest is John Hanrahan. He's a former Olympic hopeful and um, fashion model and he, um, author of Wrestling with Angels. Let's bring him on. John Hanrahan. Join us from Atlanta, Georgia. How are you today, John? Hey, everybody. I'm doing great. Hey, thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Um, and we met John at uh, about a, a training camp last year before the world championships. I was out in Atlanta and, and that's where you're based and, and met you at the camp and you, you kind of explained your story to me and I was like, and, and you handed me a book and I was like, wow, okay, this is, this is, seems like a wild story. <laughs> um, a lot of twists and turns, I'm sure. So wh where are you from? What's it like? And how did you get involved with wrestling? You know, I was born in Washington, DC. Grew up uh, just a couple miles over the bridge in Falls Church, Virginia. Was a was a good wrestling culture there, kind of embedded. Went to a high school where the basketball team sucked, and the wrestling coach was out of that Granby system. And anybody who was anybody in my neighborhood went out for wrestling. Cool. I grew up in a big family, and my older sisters all they all had crushes on the wrestlers, so I knew that I wanted to be get the girls. I better be a good wrestler, so I went all in on it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Um... Once you know, maybe maybe you got into it because all the girls liked it, and that's what the culture was like. But once once you were into it, what did you like about wrestling? You know what I liked? I tried all the sports. You know, I I started football my first the first year in first grade, and then I brought home a flyer, and I was so excited to come home and run into the living room. I said, "Mom, mom, I found my sport. I know what I'm going to do this next season." And she took the flyer and she looked at it. I said, "I'm going to be a boxer." And she looked at the flyer and she said, she looked it over and saw wrestling. She steered me into wrestling. She said, honey, won't you try wrestling? I, I was relentless. I said, mom, no, mom, I'm going to be a boxer. But you know what? She had been to a, a collegiate meet at the Naval Academy. She went on a blind date there with somebody. And I think she saw something in the sport. So she steered me towards it. I took a liking to it right away. That double leg tackle I was doing in football became my, my takedown and, uh, I just like to the ability to kind of be out there. It was scary though. Don't get me wrong, but um, I love the the fact of facing your fears and just controlling your own destiny and kind of figuring out figuring out the maneuvers you needed to to use. I didn't have a good coach. I could see that he was he was looking at the old Bobby Douglas book of moves and he before he'd show us a move and uh, and so I figured out my own leverage system and stuff too. But he was great. Awesome. Ah. Uh... So, so that's interesting, right? Like your coach maybe wasn't, I guess, all that experience and having to kind of learn it on your own. What was that like? And, and when did you start to see success or did you have, kind of have success right away? You know, I got I got success right away. I, um, you know, I won the, the uh, junior tournament in the in the Northern Virginia area and beat the commissioner's son in the finals. And, uh, and then the next year, the next year I, I, I faced a guy that was pretty tough, really well trained, and I ended up losing in that. And uh, you know, I just wanted to disappear. I wanted to wanted to, you know, control the tears from coming out because you're out there so alone and everything. But it just kind of instilled the fuel on the fire and um just kept me working at a higher level. You know, I just kind of uh, just had a hunger and passion for it. I didn't want to feel that feeling very often. Nobody wants to feel that feeling very often, right? <laughs> um um, that's cool. So I guess at pre senior level, kind of take us through some of the success that you had and, and what I guess made you want to continue to wrestle, um, post high school and, and college. You know, a, um, I took third in the state as a 10th grader and lost a semifinal match on a split decision over time where the, back when the referees voted and then that guy cleaned up in the final. So I, I kind of knew then I deserved to be, I was good enough to be in the state finals. And mm -hmm. 
sure enough, I, I moved up three weight classes and won the Virginia States the next two years. And then my junior year, I placed, got to the finals of the AAU high school nationals. And then um, Iowa City, which was the olden days, Fargo, uh, made it to the finals of that. But you know what? It, it was uh, my high school coach. He was just great. And he uh, he took me up to watch the NCAAs in 1972. And that was the year Lee Kemp lost lost in a split decision his freshman year to Chuck Yaglin. We sat Matt's side and and got to see all those all those great wrestlers and just see what it was all about. And, and then our coach took us down into the wrestling room. It was at Princeton that year. And he said, this is what, this is what we're really here for. So he took us to the wrestling room between rounds and there was Dan Gable showing moves and, and uh, you know, just all the greats, the Peterson brothers. And, and, and I was, I had enough audacity. I went up to Gable when he was alone and I said, Hey, you want to go take downs? And he was like, get out of here, kid. You're bothering me. <laughs> So I went and sat dejected against the wall and watched them. You know, back when he'd show a move, everybody would gather around with their camcorder, Super 8 project movie cameras and video it. But you know what? He came over to me, grabbed me out by the arm. He said, let's go, kid. And so he went some takedowns with me, played around, you know. So that was great. I never forgot that because he was he was my idol. You know, I saw him in the 72 Olympics. And uh, I also saw this guy, Rick Sanders, who I really enjoyed watching because he was so creative and so technical and that a lot of us just kind of he was kind of like he had this reputation as the James Dean of wrestling and we and we all kind of gravitated towards him all the guys in my neighborhood and and we started talking about Rick Sanders and how tough he was and uh, so that's kind of like the culture I grew up in and then I was lucky enough to get recruited by a lot of the a lot of the great schools I didn't know much about Penn State but they were kind of last on board to recruit me and the other schools had kind of flown me up. So it was kind of cool. I was took an air flight first time for some of those trips, but when they contacted me, they said, you know, drive up and we'll pay for gas. I didn't know if they were serious. They said, bring your parents. I ended up bringing a, a friend from the neighborhood, grab, grab my friend Floyd. And I said, come on, we're going up to Penn state. I said, I don't think they're serious about me because they're not flying me up, <laughs> but come on up. We'll have a great weekend and just have fun. And so I got introduced to the culture up there and I could just see that the townspeople were so incredibly knowledgeable about wrestling. I could see the, the packed rec hall pictures and, you know, and the heavyweight being carried off after a victory and just, uh, and um, you know, I just, kind of became part of that culture so and which you, was rare for for a guy from virginia because they weren't used to going out of state to get their wrestler so i was kind of lucky i got on their radar and i was uh, coach lorenzo's first all-american and i ended up having my best ncaa tournament in that same princeton gymnasium that i was in a few years earlier and uh you know, then I found myself that summer, my freshman year of college, being Gable's, be, being Gable's lead and lead clinician uh, assistant and uh, getting to work out with him between rounds. And that was totally different from a few years earlier in that NCA where he just grabbed me by the hand and said, let's go take downs, kid. So I got that full experience. So if you went to Penn State, how did you link up with Gable and, and be like his lead clinician? Where did that connection come from? You know, it was, uh, you know, the tentacles in wrestling go a long way. It was uh, Gus D'Augustino, who was a legendary wrestler in the Pittsburgh area. And two of his sons were on scholarship at Penn State. Mike was an All-American at 118. And then Scotty was this uh, superstar that never really got the chance to pan out. And and so I knew the D'Augustino family and, um, you know, I had just been ranked as the top freshman in my wake coming off a, um, coming out of the NCAAs. I didn't place an NCAAs. I, I lost first round back then. Your guy had to make it to the semis to, to wrestle back. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, they, they just called me up and, uh, had me come out. So, um, you know, everybody admired Gable back then. Everybody knew Gable was the guy to, uh, emulate and, uh, and any chance my coach had any opportunity to get me the best training I could, he did. I was the, me and our teammate were the first guys to get linked up with New York AC. Before I got to Penn State, they 
they didn't have much of a freestyle program to speak of. So everybody, well, Coach Lorenzo knew right away he needed to try to emulate what the Hawkeye Wrestling Club was doing. And so I was kind of one of the pioneers for that and the first guy to, to do summer things at Penn State. Tell me about being being a lead clinician for Coach Gable. What did that entail? Did you travel around with him and, and go to different camps? Now, did you learn from it, him? Did you train with him? It was the gold medal camp. And um, and it was just the Pittsburgh, the okay. the one week in Pittsburgh, like a, an intensive camp. But yeah, you know, the the main thing was you know he he got to demonstrate on me, but but then we get to go live between matches when the kids would leave, and and he would go out of the room, <laughs> come back in with a different game face on. I knew this was uh this is this what I need to experience that type of stuff. So, so it was invaluable that time, but then, then to sit back over in the dorm area with him and Gusty Augustino watching baseball, turned out Gable was a big baseball fan and, and drinking a few beers and just kind of kicking back with them. Like, I'm like, wow, I've arrived. You know, I'm sitting here with Dan Gable. Not only I'm getting to work out with him full throttle, but, but just kind of hang out with him and getting to know his persona and seeing that he's real. And then uh, I think the following year I got to the um, junior world camp where I was was able to go a group of four with Dave Schultz, Mark Schultz, and Mark Chorella. and that's that's really kind of the uh, that's kind of the group that really kind of helped to bring me to next to the next level. That sounds awesome, but it sounds miserable at the same time. <laughs> am, am I am I close? Am I accurate here? It was it was a Bill Wick camp, so there was a lot of running involved, and there was a lot of just continual live wrestling for an hour. But it was it was awesome. But um, and he was the kind of coach I don't care, I don't care what you do in the evening, socialize and all that. I don't care if you go downtown and have a beer or whatever, as long as you you do these three sessions and uh, these ten miles a day in the live wrestling. And so that's the way the kind of the camp was, and and I was all in on that. But um. You know, and I lost in the final wrestle-offs uh, for that spot, that spot to Mark Schultz and uh, him and him and Dave were at the same weight at 163, but but Dave moved up to 180 and and just beat Bannock pretty pretty good those two matches those two out of three matches and so he got the spot there, so uh, it was just amazing training with those guys especially Mark Chorella, getting getting to see him because he was one of my idols too. Did you say you lost the day? Uh, no, Mark in the best tour and the and the what is it? The World Team Trial Finals or the, was it? What year was the it? Ju- the Junior World Team file. The the Junior World Team final trials at the camp came down to me and him. Okay, so that was and he be, early, early 70s, be, mid 70s. That was um, that was uh, 80. 80. Okay, a little later. Yeah. Um. Okay. Yeah. Mark had uh, Mark had just transferred from UCLA and. And and was going to start Oklahoma with Dave in the fall. Dave Dave was ineligible that next year because he had transferred twice now. Sure. Um. What, what was gosh Gable and now Schultz, the Schultz brothers? What was it like? Maybe on the mat, maybe off the mat, with hanging out with the Schultz brothers, spending time with them. You know, it was fun, and and I'll never forget. You know, um, just between one of the training sessions and uh, just kind of sitting around shooting the, shooting the breeze. And then uh, guys were talking about getting in the street fights and, uh, and um, everybody was saying, man, I'm, you know, I, I never worry about a street fight. And, and uh, Dave goes, yeah, I only worry about a guy with a gun. That's the only guy I'm worried about is a guy with a gun. Cause when are you going to do then? And, uh, and I got to see Dave the month before he was killed because I got, kind of got back in the rest and I was training with Rico Ciparelli and I had gotten off track as far as my wrestling and, and uh, we can talk about that later in my books about that, but I wanted to kind of get one more shot of Dave Schultz. I started, I realized Rico Ciparelli was in New York where I had a gym with the wrestling mat and started training with him and John Jura. And then they took me down the Fox catcher and I kind of, I got to see that whole vibe that was going on, brought my wife and kid down there and they were telling us all these war stories on the drive down. And it's just like, it was, it was just bizarre. And, um, you know, so, um, Dave was a big part of my life. I got to wrestle in the East West all-stars and I got to, 
go to um, wrestling in the big duel out in Tulsa. And then um, I was invited for the for the 83 World World Cup team trials finals, me, Dave Schultz, Lee Kemp, and King Mueller from Iowa, the four of us. And, uh, and uh, had a good match with Lee and then uh, took a loss to Dave also, but I beat King Mueller from Iowa. So um, I've had good experience with all those guys. Lee Kemp's become a dear friend of mine. When I moved to Atlanta, he was here and we opened a training club together. Oh, cool. Um, you, so you mentioned Foxcatcher and, and I think you, you, the word maybe you used was vibe. I could see the vibe that was going on there. What was the vibe or feeling or what was it like on this farm? You know what it was like? It was, um, you know, so um, one of my Penn State uh, understudies was there, Greg Alinsky, who took over my spot. I kind of recruited him. He was there on the farm. And so we were with, my wife was with his wife, Renee Alinsky. And uh, and she, you know, she schooled my wife. She said, if if, uh, if John comes in the room or in the hallway, do not do not look at him. Do not look at him in the eye. Huh. She's like, that's weird. And it was just, you know, and and on the drive down, the guys told us all the stories about him driving into the pond with the wrestling dignitary and, uh-huh. and then him swimming to the shore and just thought it was the funniest thing to see that guy almost drown. And then, you know, the, the thing with Shade had already happened like a couple of weeks before where he got in a full crouch with a automatic weapon pointing at Dan Shade. And so we were just fresh off all these stories and it was just kind of just, you know, it wasn't until like um, probably eight weeks later that we saw the news bulletin. We looked at each other in our New York apartment and they said, you know, Olympic wrestler killed. And we said it was, it's DuPont. He killed, he killed Dave. And so it was, it was just so sad and tragic. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what came out of there, I was training celebrities at the time in New York city. I, I was training this list of who's who's I was training Howard Stern, Julia Roberts and Diane Sawyer was one of my clients. And the very next day, she usually missed her workouts where we're late, but she was there that morning and she wanted the exclusive story with, with Dave's wife, Nancy. So, um, so I set that up. Uh, Greg Alinsky was in contact with Nancy, kind of helping her through that. And uh, we filmed it right in our club, Law Palestra in New York City. And uh, so it was kind of involved in from a peripheral view. And, and you know, I just knew how great Dave was. He was maybe a year or two older than me. And just I just watched him in awe and seeing what he was doing as a high school senior and seeing seeing all that stuff and sure enough the first time i shot down i shot in on him out in tulsa he did get that neck wrap that strangle <laughs> and i'm like oh god what am i gonna do i have no more breath i'm about to pass out i made one more burst and got out of bounds and that's why you're always leery of shooting in on or you were leery of shooting in on dave and but i did get a take i got the only the first takedown on him of that season but um he ended up beating me. But, um, you know, there was a different kind of anxiety before you step out on the mat against Dave Schultz. You know, you always have some kind of anxiety. And that's what's great about the sport, because when you take it into the business world, you feel that anxiety and you're it's never too much. You step into a business meeting, then you crush it. But against Dave, you're like, oh, my God, we're going to get in situations I've never dreamed of. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, that's just always the utmost respect for him. Just the, the true art of wrestling he was kind of he wrestled a lot the way rick sander i saw rick sanders wrestle in the early days just with kind of really a fluidity and just an artistic expression of what was possible sure um you mentioned training you know julie roberts among others so i know at some point i believe you like got into became a fashion model of some sorts how did that come to be and and kind of what was that like hey we're talking name image likeness now nil i became pretty much an expert and i could do seminars for the young athletes today i was wrestling in a televised match penn state versus lehigh there was a there was this prominent agent that was watching on manhattan cable tv and uh, was changing the channels and then he stopped and he uh, and he saw me and, uh, and he, he said to himself this guy looks like he could do this and this guy who had found guys on GQ model covers, he was the guy that found the guy in the big Calvin Klein ads and stuff. And um, and that's how it happened. He just called directory assistant where it said false trip Virginia 
talked to my parents. They they put him in touch. And next thing you know, I was booked for Italian Vogue magazine. Uh, was working with Francesco Scavulo, one of the great photographers. And I was still wrestling. You know, I still had another year to wrestle. And uh, and so I just kind of fell into that. I was just, I had all these kind of tear sheets from uh, these international fashion magazines. I was working with, you know, the beautiful top models, female models. And uh, it was just kind of like, wow, this is pretty cool. <laughs> I'm going to be a... I'm going to be on more product endorsements than Dave after he wins his Olympic gold medal. So it was kind of my concession thing. <laughs> wow. Um, so I don't know. Like... But that allowed me to travel around the world. I had to, I had an agency that wrecked me in all the top markets, New York City with the Ford agency and Milan, Italy, Tokyo, Zurich, Switzerland, Paris. Just, uh, it was just, I got the jet set for a few years and I, I was still repped when I came out of college by the New York ACs, but I was actually living in Manhattan and, and uh, had an apartment right there in Midtown. Compare, so that was pretty cool. Com compare the life of a, of a fashion model traveling all over the world, right? And and doing photo shoots with beautiful women and, and what everything maybe that entails versus the life of a senior level wrestler who's traveling to Russia and Bulgaria and probably living uh, meagerly um, if uh, yeah, what's anything similar? What's different? You know, the frustrating thing was like, as the wrestler, you you can control certain things and make your own success. By this is part kind of part luck, being in the right place at the right time, and and just having the great the right book of work, having had the opportunity to work with the great photographers that are respected by all the other photographers and. And just uh, having that image controlled by a great agent. And uh, and so in a way, it was frustrated because, because um, you know, you couldn't tr control if you're on hold for, you know, the next Calvin Klein campaign. You really couldn't control putting that final nail in the coffin and nailing down that gig. But, but um, you know, as a wrestler, you, you know, you could go back in and just work a little bit more, work a little bit more and, and uh, beat whoever's come out in front of you. So so it was, it was kind of cool in that respect that um, that uh, wrestling kind of kind of prepared you just physically and just kind of men mentally. And uh, I had been studying photography at Penn State, too. So that was kind of cool just to see the other end of the camera and work with some of the greats because because uh, it's just amazing to see that kind of rapport that they build and uh, and that's really what makes them capture a great moment or a great image and and that'd be my advice to the young athletes kind of chasing after nil i would say just you know don't try to don't try to go for it everything you just they have to really kind of be their own best agent and and just control their images not uh not have a not dilute their image by taking all these kind of cheap products but uh only work with the best photographers, only uh, only work with the product that you yourself believe in. And, uh, and uh, you know, and, and the better, better opportunities will come because you keep yourself on that higher level. I guess at, at the highest or whatever level you were at, sounds like a pretty high level in, in fashion modeling. I have a pretty good idea what it, what it takes to be a great wrestler. Right and the kind of life you got to live and how hard you got to work and and everything else, how you know, it sounds like you just stand in front of a camera and smile. I'm sure it's harder than that, but 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 like describe the work that it takes to to be that. We still get you want what well, you have to you have to spit the sizes. So part of it is like uh, I was six foot forty regular. So the first thing they the great fashion designers need a body type, a prototype to hang their clothes on, to hang their cuts into, um, so you become like a mannequin. So you're gonna need to be six foot 40 regular. And that's that's what I was. I, I had to kind of be a little leaner than I was as a wrestler. So uh, I wouldn't lift much, but I'd, 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 I'd just run in Central Park or, or just try to stay lean. So I'd uh, fit the sizes. Uh, when Giorgio Armani first met me when I was first up there, I was sent over to see him and he was like, pressing my chest and he couldn't speak English but it, the interpreter was telling me he's you know too big too big for my suits but um, I ended up doing the American cuts like Calvin Klein and stuff but 
Uh, Versace was my big international campaign. That was pretty much my signature campaign that was uh, everywhere in the world that really kind of put me on the map. But you really can't control that much. You got to show up. You got to be arrested. But I mean, for me as a wrestler, you know, if you're if you're uh, if you were out at the bars the night before and it was maybe off season and you showed up for an open tournament and you still did well. Um, I mean, that, that went a long way to give you confidence that maybe I'm out too late tonight, but I'm going to show up to the studio and just stand in front of a camera and get paid 150 an hour for for just, you know looking like um came in fresh so that was a lot easier than entering a wrestling tournament sure and uh, having some guy trying to take your head off <laughs> the camera's <laughs> not trying to fight you yes yeah, so for me it was all kind of like you know i figured it was getting my master's degree in life you know traveling around the world and all these beautiful exotic places getting booked for tv commercials in the south pacific and and uh, the best thing about it, I met my wife on a shoot for Vogue magazine. So that was that was pretty cool. So I uh, so I'm, I've been coming up 31 years with a supermodel myself as my wife. And we've raised two sons. And good for you. Congratulations. Um, so, I, you know, at some point things you started to have a good time, I assume maybe it turned into a, a really good time. At some point it was too too good of a time. Kind of how. You know, wrestlers like you alluded to, right? Wrestlers like to go out and have beers and they'll get up in the morning and train. And how did it evolve and where did it go and how did it get there? Partly it was um, part of that culture I grew up in. When I mentioned Rick Sanders, we were like, anybody can work as hard as Gable and, and you know, and be great. But there were these stories of Rick Sanders just kind of like enjoying life on both ends of the spectrum and still kicking everybody's ass. And, and so that was just kind of this mystique that the guys, uh, the guys from my era that kind of grew up that, that kind of, that kind of had that kind of uh, outlook, you know, and I recently saw this interview last week with Brett Favre and he talked about uh, as an athlete, you're all in. Well, he got, um, he got addicted to uh, to painkillers, and, and for a season nobody knew it. And he, you know, he he, he existed. He uh, he had great performances, but it wasn't for a while until he was able to get help. But he was the way he described it. He's that all in type of guy, and so he was all in on a sport, doing all the work, showing up early, being the last to leave. But also then, when this addiction caught up with him, you know, he went all in on on seeking the amount of pills and things that he needed. But for for me, it was just kind of crept up that way that I was kind of, uh, I was just around it so much back then in the uh, in the 80s in New York City at the, at the clubs like uh, Studio 54, the Tunnel, the Palladium. It was just cocaine was in abundance and it was just, uh, you know, it's just that kind of thing that crept up the addiction on it. And uh, it was after a while that I, that I really, yeah, my family knew I had a problem. They tried to do an intervention and it kind of helped, but uh, I was going to seek help. And uh, in my book, I talk about a near death experience that I incurred and, and it helped to change my life and kind of gave me a grounding and a perspective. So uh, I dedicate a lot of my life to helping other young adults. And uh, it wasn't until my own son broke his leg as a high school wrestler and was put on painkillers and uh, became a victim of the opioid crisis right here in our own home. And, uh, you know, it grew into heroin and getting heroin off the street. And uh, and it was then that I knew I needed to tell my story. As soon as I had my near-death experience and I, and I was able to kind of return back to life, I had kind of made a promise that I was going to share my story to help others. But it wasn't really, it wasn't really, I didn't really put the story together until... I was on the verge of losing my own son where a doctor told my wife and I asked us if we, if we planned his funeral, because we were definitely going to lose him. His body was shutting down his liver enzymes and stuff from intravenous drug use. And, uh, but he's one of the great success stories. He's, uh, he's, that was 10 years, he's 10 years clean. He's uh, got his film degree from London and now he's working on a, as part of a production team on Netflix projects right now. And he's done a lot of cool work. And so it was when it hits home to your family, you, you really, you realize there's not many families that can relate to you. 
So part of my mission is to talk about it because it, by talking about it, it helps others. My wife and I formed a foundation to help others. It's called recoveryangel.org. It's a nonprofit. And we've had several families reach out to us and we've given them advice on, on getting their loved ones help and, uh, and counseling. And uh, so that's kind of been rewarding. And uh, I was lucky to have had great coaches growing up and it kind of gave me the, uh, the emotional strength and the, uh, resiliency to to kind of conquer this obstacle and uh so this was like years ago i was 25 when i went through that okay um but i go deep into it in the book so um it's hard to describe what a near-death experience is but that's that was my main reason because having to having experienced that I, i needed to share that with people that have doubt about life or life after death yeah, when, when I, that's what exactly what I was going to ask. When you say near-death experience, is it like, was it an you know almost overdose to to death, or was it something else? You got high and ran in front of a train, or I don't, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> no, it was a, it was a death by by a lethal injection, a lethal amount of cocaine by a by a physician that lived across the hall from me in New York City. What? Who ended up in ended up in prison for manslaughter in another case about a month later after my case. So um, it's a crazy story. I lived to tell about it. Uh, no, I was actually my soul was pulled out of my body, and I was <laughs> I was wrestling against whatever that force was, like an angel or that that took hold of my torso and ripped me out of my physical body. That was kind of part of it. It was a, it was a match I was not going to win to stay in, to stay in this realm. And uh, so I was kind of transplanted and, uh, and I really spell it out in the story. It's hard to talk about it in a um, abbreviated sense. Sure. Because uh, I was shown my entire life and uh, that's why it was easy for me to write this book. Uh, I, I saw myself as a young kid growing up and, and I, I saw myself part of that strength with as a wrestler. I knew um, I knew uh, I could face struggles and challenges because we've been through that as wrestlers. But you know, and 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 I saw your story. I appreciated what you did on um, on um, that NCAA champ from Edinburgh, and that was uh, you know that was a great story. Part of mine really goes really deep into. Um, you know, recovery is one thing, but um, but it's 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 a really tough road, and and uh, and it's and many stumble along the way to recovery. So it it takes their loved ones to keep hope and 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 keep uh, stay behind them. So you had this this intervention from your family. You said maybe it kind of worked, but maybe it was this this near death experience that like. Well, first of all, I, I, we don't have to go into all the details of it because it doesn't sound like we could do it very quickly. But how long is, is this? A, was this a 10 minute thing? Was this a two hour thing overnight, day, week? How long did this soul getting ripped out of your body? How long did this whole thing, this experience last? It was well, when you when you when you go there, you're in a timeless realm. So it's 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 a good question because you don't know really the amount of time that transpired. But. When I got back into my body, it was uh, the sun was up, and when when it had gone down, it was uh, completely dark outside. But it was it was probably just a matter of uh, 15, 20 minutes before I was revived. But uh, it felt like an eternity, or or in a time timeless place. And I had I had uh, I didn't I didn't realize that I was going to be able to come back. I had asked. Uh, my creator asked one thing, uh, not to let my loved one, my family members, my parents and brothers and sisters to suffer the rest of their life, you know, where they feel they failed at having gotten me help because they did not. And I was in the place where I wanted to be, where everybody kind of yearns to be. Now, there's another wrestler out there, NCAA champ, that's had near-death experience, drowning experience. I don't think he's talked about his story yet, and I'll let him do that in and uh, he went to a different place. I had a different experience. You know, the more I talk about it, the more I have people talk about it to me. There was a, a young wrestler I worked out with at the club. 
here uh, a couple weeks ago, 19 year old, I told him a little bit about my story. He was so glad to hear it. He was a 19 year old college wrestler that had a meth overdose. And he told me he went, he had a experience where he went to hell. So, uh, you know, I don't have all the answers, but at, at, in that realm, all the answers are coming through you. That it's just truth and love that flows through you. And uh, and something you realize that's been in you the whole time. So when you get to come back, hopefully your mission becomes to kind of reflect that better to others and to kind of grow that, grow that still small voice in yourself. So you become a, become a better person as you walk through life. So, you know, I guess it was a timeless realm, but really you said maybe it was 15, 20 minutes or, you know. Yeah. Did you, when you came out of it or when you got back in your body, however you, I don't know how, how to categorize it or describe it, but did you immediately be like, was it immediate, like, got to get help, got to cleaned up, or was it like, oh, fuzzy, maybe I need to do this, and then and then you kind of got down the right path, or what happened after you came back from wherever I, you uh, I immediately... I immediately jumped up and just just patted my legs there in my jeans and just uh, and just went across to my back to my apartment and just kind of uh, looked in the mirror and just made a vow that I would share the story with as many people as possible, find a way to do it. And but there's, but there was, uh, it, it was an easy road after that. There was, and that's why I write the book. And that's why, you know, sometimes if somebody writes a piece of, if I was going to write a piece and I'm, I didn't have a friend to help me stay honest, you would want to just say, yeah, everything was just perfect right after that. Yeah. But you know what? There were some, there were some relapses after that. And that's, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and that's part of the journey because that's part of recovery. Because everybody's gonna, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's not like a magic cure. It's really tough. So I, I write about that, and I felt like, you know, a lot of times when, tr when people try to tell their story, that it's like they leave out the gory details. But uh, the the thing that's resonated with my book, Wrestling with Angels, is that it's true and it's raw, and and people people feel that and people realize that it's uh, just, it's, it's really kind of a roller coaster ride of an adventure because it was, it was something interesting to write about having, you know, grown up as a wrestler and, uh, and then, and then having um, had my picture taken thousands of times for products around the world and TV commercials and, and experienced that whole aspect of life. But um and then I became one of the top trainers. I was top trainer in L.A., New York City. And uh, so I've got some interesting tidbits and in part of a roller coaster. Oh, and then the wrestling thing, you know, it's, it's really kind of been a thread through my life. I was I was able to meet John Irving, one of the great writers, when I was right. young, and I admired him. He, he saw me wrestle against the Japanese national team. It, it was in the New York AC gym, and I was, I was their 163-pounder. And I got to talk with him afterwards and, and, and he was a former wrestler and I always liked the way he wrote and kind of weaved in the sport of wrestling, kind of connotate the struggle. So I kind of, I try to do that as much as I can. So as, as far as becoming a trainer in LA and New York, was this before or after the near death experience or maybe both? It was after. It was after. It was after. And it was, um, it was, it was my wife that kind of helped me to see that my wife, Kirsten, the model that I had met. And by this time we were, we were, in we were together in New York city and, uh, and she knew I had a gift for that. And uh, I had, I had been mentored by one of the great string coaches at Penn state, Dan Riley, who went on to be uh, one of the great NFL string coaches. And uh, I took his exercise science courses and got trained by him personally. And just, it just kind of just, inspired me about what you can do with a great strength coach that's really looking to help you fulfill your best so so i became a trainer in new york city and all this and came up the ranks pretty quick and and uh, became the vice president of this club called la, la palestra which was um, just this amazing club it was kind of a who's who of uh, new yorkers i was training john kennedy jr 
uh, Liam Neeson and just Natasha Richardson and her husband, Liam Neeson, and just uh, just really incredible. And um, and that's when I uh, realized Chip Relly was in town and I had him start coming by. We started training out there because I wanted to, you know, we were trying to impart to our clients to kind of uh, to take on a goal, like a, a goal that seems far-fetched. And, you know, a lot of them, we were getting them to do the New York Marathon, trained a couple clients, one in particular to climb Mount Everest and just all kinds of amazing things that kind of prepared them, kind of get back to the way we were in the gym, always preparing for for an event. And so that was really cool to do that. And I kind of felt hypocritical. And then I felt like, wow, I'm going to go back through the Olympic trials because I lost this gap of wrestling and Schultz is still out there. So in 95... I told my wife, you know what? I'm going to train for the Olympic trials. I got, and then I got Rico as my uh, training partner and John Jur and Rob Cole would come in and work out with us. When, when anybody who was coming through town uh, would stop in and train with us. And so that was pretty cool. And that kind of, I, you know, totally shocked my body to become a wrestler again. Howard Stern would watch us wrestle and he'd, he'd get a kick out of it. He'd say, man, I don't know how you guys do it. You guys are like freaking Neanderthals, <laughs> you oh, know? So it was just, uh, Julia, you know, Julia Roberts asked me to teach her wrestling. She booked me to teach her wrestling. And uh, I kind of blew her off on that because um, she showed up late. <laughs> really? Yeah. But I talk about that in the book. I was, I, I did all of her other training with her, but I, but um, her wrestling session with me, she was stuck in a looping, uh, looping lines for a movie she had just done. So I wasn't going to be stood up waiting there 15, 20 minutes. So I took off home. I had a new baby at home. Take no shit. <laughs> so my wife appreciated that. I just... Nice. Uh, so during during your not clean days or, or the rough times, were you wrestling or did you did you quit wrestling or stop, I guess? And, and then you started modeling and you couldn't really probably wrestle while you were modeling, I assume. You know, I, um, I I drifted away from it. I got to um, I was chosen for the U.S. team in in a match against the Soviets, and I uh, and I had a I had just wild match against Vorviva, who was the uh, world silver medalist, and it ended up eleven to nine. And uh, I was I got down by six or seven points in the first period. It was nine minute matches back then, but. The third period, I totally owned them and just was just to run out of time and slip the last headlock. But I'd blown through them on like a couple really great head and gut double legs, and so that was cool. And then, uh, and then you know, I was one of the top three guys for that World Cup team trials, and uh, and then I I just kind of I just kind of drifted away after that after um, right before the '84 trials. I just kind of threw in the towel because the drugs were creeping up with me and it was, and it was something I, I stayed away from for a while. And it wasn't until, you know, I, I was engaged to my wife. I think it was, um, 88, 89. I think it was that I was like, I was out that night with an old college wrestling roommate of mine that lived in the city too. And we were out, we were in this bar and I'm like, I'm going to go wrestle in the New York New York AC open tomorrow. And they're like, yeah, right. And I showed up to do that. And Sonny Greenall was like, Hanrahan, what the hell are you doing here? We haven't seen you in so long. He's like, this ought to be, this ought to be good. And so I ended up going to that tournament and, and uh, winning that. And so that kind of, that, that kind of put me back into a wrestling mode somewhat. And then, um, and then one of the New York AC guys asked me to, to coach the Fordham University team, and it was only a club status team, but but I took that over, began training that team, and we competed in the Metropolitan League against all the uh, Division One teams, and we did well. And so I kind of was uh, had that experience, and then but it wasn't until '95 that I was I went all in and really shocked my body training with those guys, and went through all the trials. Was the uh, East Region runner up for the uh, trials, and then. Uh, beat Ray Miller, a young NCAA champ at the 96 trials in the U.S. Open and was one match away from uh, getting on the podium, but losing to Marcus Molliker in a match. He got a good throw on me, tossed me pretty good. So I was back. I was a wrestler and I was happy. I was like, 
exercised a lot of the demons in my past. So wrestling is a sport that's kind of done that for me. And, uh, you know, to this day, I, I keep it as part of my lifestyle. People talk about wrestling as a lifestyle. But for me, I, I try to, you know, I'm as a strength and conditioning coach, I impose increments of stress, carefully orchestrated increments of stress on people for them to make adaptations, become stronger individuals. Part of my stress routine is to make it is to wrestle live one, two, maybe three times a week. This time of year, it's, uh, I have a lot of opportunities because we have a lot of college off-season guys here training with us at our clubs. So um, it's truly a, kind of a lifestyle, kind of a martial art, if you will. Uh, when I first went out to L.A., I was kind of uh, – Chipperelli went out there too, and and I was part of creating this warehouse gym. It was going one of the first MMA wrestling gyms called Raw, Real American Wrestling. Rico, um, Rico had uh, – Dan Henderson, Randy Couture, and uh, Vladimir Marshinkowitz and Frank Trigg, they were all training out of there. And uh, so I was kind of part of that whole initial infusion of wrestling MMA. So that's kind of a cool time. That sounds awesome. And this was, what, in the late 90s? This was, uh, now you're getting the 99 with, with that club we opened up in El Segundo, California. And um, yeah. And so what today you you live in you live in Atlanta is that privatetraining.com is that you or do you are you a trainer today or what do you do Yeah now that's been my company I'm a kind of a health and wellness practitioner I am um, uh, uncommissioned or uh, under contract I'm strength and conditioning director at a small private school here also been coaching their wrestling team for like 10 years and then um I have private clients I've always had kind of uh, some key private clients. I have uh, one in particular I've been keeping in the best shape of his life for 15 years. He's a chairman of, of an international company that's based here in Atlanta. And uh, so he keeps me on a retainer and I'm becoming really his life coach, his personal coach. And uh, and so that's kind of cool. It's because uh, people say, why would you leave all those great Hollywood clients? Because, well, you know, I had the opportunity to open this, this fantastic health club in Miami Beach and South Beach. So I did that for a number of years and then got a chance to open one for Lifetime Fitness in Atlanta. And then since then, I've been doing my own thing. Okay. Pretty awesome. So you, you've had like this amazing journey, right? Wrestling, college and Foxcatcher and with the Schultz and Gable and 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 you, you're Julie Roberts and John F. Kennedy Jr. Like you, you, there's all these, 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 different industries but like mingling and intermingling with the top level people what parts of your life were you the happiest or have you been the happiest you know really just you know as a father i think you're a new father too so i mean those moments you you, you really can't replace any of them that feeling that you get as, as a father and, and just kind of being happy but the most challenging too <laughs> because I've almost lost both my sons to addiction. And so um, the happiest that makes me now is they're both clean and they're both thriving now in their own professions. And uh, but it was really touch and go for both of them, both of them at a time. And, you know, and just knowing that my wife and I, because it creates so much stress between couples and families and and everything. And just knowing that we've kind of conquered that and we've stayed together. And not only that, we we try to help other families as much as we can. That really makes me the happiest. Um, when did you share your story with your with your kids? Was it once you knew that they were struggling with their own addiction? Was it prior? Was it once it like it almost got too far? Yeah, that's a good question because um, my kind of my book starts out the first chapter where he's on his deathbed and uh, and um, you know we we'd sent him to treatment and all that and it kind of failed and. Uh, and and you always kind of wonder with the kids growing up, should you tell them, be honest with them, or, or is it kind of you make them feel like they have a green light to go and do everything that could kill them too? But but it was a point where I was like, you know, I'm going to lose this this precious kid, and uh, so I began to tell him my total story of uh, crossing over, of losing my life, and uh, and uh, that's kind of became the main chapter in the book. And then it becomes at the end of that chapter, who I really am and what my story is. And, uh, 
and he te- he says that really helped them, really helped them turn the corner. It really helped them. And uh, both of my sons wanted to wanted to um, to share their real names in the book, but uh, one of my last edits was uh, to change their names to something in case they ever wanted to stay anonymous. So um, so I changed their first names. Uh, that was one of the last edits. It was that I was the last edit. The, the edit before that, I took all my F words out of my book. I had so many, <laughs> you know, because come I'm writing from the heart. But then I took I edited them all into something different, but I but the only F words I, I kept was direct quotes from Howard Stern because he couldn't <laughs> help himself. <laughs> I had to capture Howard actually actually accurately. You know, I train him when he come to L.A. too, and I'd pick him up in my Toyota and under his uh, fake name or whatever he was. And then we went, I'd take him for a run or whatever. He was, he got into running a lot. So I took him for a run down down the neighborhood of Beverly Hills. And uh, and one day this big tour bus was coming by and, um, and then <laughs> we're out running and you know, he's wearing a bandana or something, thinking he has a disguise on. Then you see that tour bus at the next intersection start to make this U-turn and come back. And everybody, all those tourists are hanging out the window. Yo, Howard, we love you, Howard. <laughs> <laughs> so that was funny. Just seeing that, he looked at me and goes, those freaking idiots. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that a bandana is going to disguise. <laughs> he seems pretty recognizable. Um... Yeah, exactly. Did you write the book yourself? Did you have a ghostwriter? Did you have help? I had a book and I uh, I hired a collaborator, Jim Eber, to um, to really kind of keep me honest. You know, one of my clients was um, was a 20-time New York Times bestseller, Laura Morton. And she was the first person I shared my manuscript with. And uh, she, she just was in all of it. And just uh, she connected me with, with uh, Jim Eber, who really... I brought on in my project to really keep me honest and to push me to to just throw it all out there and not worry about how I look or or whatever, just because good or bad, I wanted to tell the whole story. So he was really good about that. And uh, we became very good friends. Uh, but it's all my my writing and uh, my story. Nice. And I know some people want to make it into a film, uh, but we'll wait until we get the the right people that want to do it. Sure. Uh, like some of my some of my clients, you know, it was funny a wrestling related story. One of my one of my LA clients or Hollywood clients was Patricia Heaton, who was a big star at the time from Everybody Loves Raymond. And it wasn't until one of our workouts that we were working out, and and we and we realized that her high school sweetheart was the guy that was one of my nemesis from Iowa that had beat me my junior year in the semifinals. His name was Mike Deanna. She had grown up with him in Ohio. So that was kind of a funny story. (laughs) Oh man, you've got a a wild story and an incredible, incredible journey. It sounds like you've been on. Um, I want to just kind of switch gears a little bit, still talking wrestling. Yeah. And you, you know, you've talked about wrestling with the Schultz brothers and, you know, Rico and Saunders and Gable and like, there was this amazing era and I feel like wrestling has come back to like a golden era. Now we got Burroughs and Dake and Taylor and Jaden Cox and Kyle Snyder and, and the women and on and on. What do you think about the landscape of where USA wrestling is today? It's, it really is amazing. And, and, and really having been part of that Olympic training camp that we hosted here in Alpharetta with the cooler was just so great to see all three styles combined and training together with the the Greco, the women's team, and the and then the U.S. team, and uh, and just seeing how gracious Burrow was, Burrow, Jordan Burrows was during that time where he could have been bitter because he didn't have that spot on that Olympic team. Uh, you just to really, it was the first time I got to talk to him and get to know him, but it's just so impressed with him. What a what a great ambassador for wrestling, and then. You know, I had no doubt that he would get that next world championship when he had the chance in the fall. But just the way he writes, too, just inspires so many the young kids and inspires people of all ages. So just great. And uh, and what the women are doing and just incredible, incredible athlete, Adeline and 
Helen, just all of them, Jakara, and just to meet Tamara and just, uh, you know, just see her bubbly personality and just see that show through to the rest of the world when she won that gold. She, she's the kind of person that jumps out of the screen. And so it's, it's just amazing. I'm just, um, you know, Penn State's got to step up and get their women's program. They got a new athletic director. Hopefully uh, he sees the value and uh, doesn't like Iowa get too far ahead of them. In that realm, Iowa's got um, Clarissa there, and and um, she's so great too. And what an ambassador for them! And it's just amazing. You know, the time when I think in '79, Jeff Abbott, who wrote a review of my book, and uh, and uh, really seemed to enjoy it, and uh, he talked about in I think it was '79 was the peak number of co college Division One wrestling teams, and it was my freshman year of college. And so I mean, it's. it's it's really whittled down in numbers, but um, but I think the strength is still there, the culture is still there. The uh, you know I get out to the NCAs every time and just see that packed arena. It's just full full of electricity, and uh, I stay part of Nittany Lion Wrestling Club and try to support them the best I can. And I've gotten to know Kale and Cody and uh, Casey and those three guys and Barnard, and just uh, really. I'm really feel privileged to be part of that family. When uh, Kale took over, my my coach Rich Lorenzo called me and uh, and and set up a time for me to meet Kale. And Kale couldn't have been more gracious and reaching out to all the uh, former alumni and and uh, really putting together the formula to really make us all proud. I think that's got to be an understatement, man. They are kicking ass. <laughs> they are. They're yeah. you know they're the. Hawkeyes of the '80s. They're they're the next. They're doing great. So it's it's got to be fun to be be an alumni and just watch them win, year after year and champ after champ. So you know when I you know I check my email, I check uh, social media and stuff. But I, I check. I like to go on this site with all the old wrestling guys that follow uh, Penn State wrestling and kind of see what they're chattering about. And it's called Blue White Illustrated. I go on there and just kind of like listen to all these old knowledgeable guys. They've been around the sport for years. And uh, so I always get a kick out of just kind of keeping my finger on the pulse of, of them. Yeah, it's 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 a blast to keep up with. Um, we're running right down to the, to the end of the hour here. But man, John, this is, I, and I feel like we probably only scratched the surface. And I know the book, book's got a lot more detail. Um, but I, I want to give you the final word to talk. Say anything you want about your journey, life, wrestling, passion, whatever you want to talk yeah. about. You know, my, my books created different avenues and um, the founder of athletes in action, uh, who um, his name is David Hanna. He reached out to me because he's since him and his son have formed this group ambassadors of compassion, and they are really making a difference in young adults in their lives. And, and it's a character building program. And uh, they're, they're working within high schools at the 10-week program and uh, he's asked me to be one of the legacy leaders and uh, it's just an amazing group and so I'm working with them and I feel privileged to try to help the young adults there's so many that that haven't had the childhood coaches like many of us have had and uh, guys that can help push you through the the tough times in life when things when you when you're confronting obstacles and then you you need to dig a little deeper you need to have some hope and some uh, inspiration so the that's really what this program is to help individuals kind of develop emotional re resiliency and to help conquer and, and become better citizens in life so we have a lot of corporate sponsors behind this and uh, and there's an opportunity for coaches throughout the country um, there's a simple fundraiser that ambassadors of compassion can hook them up with and they can raise like five, 10,000 for their club or make a difference. And uh, so I'm helping connect them with high school coaches and college coaches. And uh, to find out more about that, it's aoclife.org, aoclife.org. Uh, but I wanted to um, talk a little bit about that, but I really appreciate being here, Mark. I, I really enjoy what you guys do. And I know, um, my book touches on tough subjects and I'm glad to really uh, just talk about it with anybody. And I appreciate you giving me this moment today. Absolutely, man. Yeah. Thank you for coming on talking. It's, it's a roller coaster and a, and a, and a wild ride. And I think you said aoclife.org, right? Is That's the website, right. website and um, wrestling with angels is the book. So that's right. 
If you get a chance, check them out. Um, John, thanks so much for joining us. I'm sure we'll, we'll be running into each other again, and uh, have a great day. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. You have a great day. Thanks. You too. Oh, man, folks, that was, uh, that was a fantastic, fantastic show. Really appreciate John coming on. And uh, that's going to do it for today. We'll be back on tomorrow with TJ Seabolt, um, club out in Iowa. They had seven champs at Fargo, so looking forward to that. Um, and that'll do it for John Hanrahan. I'm Mark Bader. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time.